All right. Well, let's get to these phone lines, and Mac is up next. Good morning, Mac. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Well, my question for this go-around is I've, I have kind of a mystery I'd like to get cleared up. Okay. Uh, I was reading on the uh, Texas Forestry Service website mm-hmm. that a china berry tree, the berry, the bark, the wood, the leaves, everything on it is poisonous. Now, I have a little grove, I guess you could call it, of china berry trees, and I remember what you said in the past, that there's no bad trees. Right. There's just different applications. And where these trees are, they really do uh, serve a really definite purpose, and mm-hmm. it's uh, actually kind of pretty. But my question is, though, in part of that area, I have a little garden space. And when those trees lose their leaves, mm-hmm. I have uh, a lot of those leaves go in my garden, which I'm going to have to abandon because the trees are actually kind of taking the area. But what I wondered is, do those leaves, if they're poisonous, does that hurt the garden in any way? It doesn't. Um Virtually every plant out there, if consumed to excess, would have negative impacts on things. And if we wanted to identify poisonous plants in the Texas landscape, I mean, Mount Laurel would be right up there at the top of the list. Uh, There are a large number of plants out there. In fact, if if the deer don't eat it, you can be fairly sure that there's something in there that to some animals at some point might be somewhat toxic. Now, in the case of the china berries, it's very misleading just to say that everything about it is toxic because when you look at all those berries that are produced, when the berries start to ferment late in the spring and they ferment, they produce alcohol, they become a just a delightful source of food for everything from robins to many other birds out there. So this is not like a toxic material that remains unchanged in the landscape and poisons everywhere it goes like some of the you know uh, like we talk about the picloram and some of these herbicides that are toxic and never go away the material that it makes the china berry unattractive to the critters that would like to eat on it is not something that's going to remain in the ground in a toxic form and i am not aware of anything in there that could potentially be taken up by other plants and things like that. I know that cattle and things eat the grass that grows underneath the china berry tree with no bad side effects, and that you know little patch of soil has had leaves and berries coming down on it for as long as the china berry tree has been alive. Now, the china berry, to me, is not an especially good tree because it's weak-wooded, it's short-lived, and it is somewhat messy, but I'm sure not going to cut it down if it provides shade, if it provides a windbreak. Uh, neither am I going to chew on the leaves or on the green berries, but uh, I, I I just hate it when people only tell part of the story. Uh, that, that's, that, that's a wise way to look at it. Well, that helps that. And the second question is, I have a tree that I transplanted from a little, just a little sprig in Anacuna. Okay, Anakwa. Okay. <laughs> and I, when I got it, it was just a, a very 
small little sprig. Uh-huh. Well, it's come out of its transplant shock, and I've been pleased that it's uh, grown the way it has. But the limb that's its chief limb uh, has grown more parallel mm-hmm. to the surface of the ground, and it's in a pot still. But what I was wondering is, I know that those really just make little ornamental trees, and the tree that I got this off of from around is, is a really pretty little ornamental tree. Okay. But I was wondering if that limb, if it would be possible on that species to uh, drive a dowel or something in the ground and stake that up and train that limb to go upright. You can do that if you like. Now you have to ask yourself if there's anything that is, you know, causing it to grow more horizontally than vertically because uh, shade, there can be many different factors, and we won't go into the explanation of why, but if that limb is just if that just happens to be the bud that sprouted and grew, sure, you can in effect force it into a more upright growth habit. But if it's leaning away from shade, if it's growing to grow into a brighter area, then you know trimming it upright would would not or or forcing it upright would not really serve a long term purpose. Now, when you put your anaqua in the ground. What you can do is sort of plant that root ball sideways is what I would do rather than trying to, uh, you know, stake it up or bend it up unnaturally. I'm going to be sure that the root flare is exposed, but I'm going to turn that root ball at a 45-degree angle or a 60-degree angle or whatever it takes. If that's the principle, if that's going to form what we call the central leader on the tree, I just, when I plant it in the ground, I'm just going to reorient the root ball to where it is more upright rather than trying to force it with staking or guying or anything else. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense, and I don't know why I didn't think about it. Uh, <laughs> you don't I see think- as much of this as I do. And this tree has um, has relatively small leaves and very rough leaves. Sandpaper tree is another name for it. Um, and, and yours has, what are the leaves, maybe a couple of inches long on it? Yes, and okay. they're, as the, they're very, it's just like a fine grit of sandpaper. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, that probably uh, is an anaqua. The reason I ask is a lot of people confuse anaqua and a, another tree that's called anaquita, which is also known as a Mexican olive, which is much more of an ornamental bush. But an anaqua tree, uh, sandpaper tree, knockaway tree, whatever you want to call it, can actually make an upright tree that will grow 30 to 40 feet in height. So keep that in mind that its natural growth habit is much more of an upright tree than a spreading tree. And, uh, you know, be sure that you're putting it at an appropriate place in the landscape. But uh, when in doubt, find a mature tree around and take a look at it and see. I I happen to have some grow on a street about three blocks away from our nursery that I look at periodically. And I think they're they're an interesting native tree. I won't call them things of great beauty, uh, but they do flower at some point. They have interesting berries on them. And that, that sandpaper leaf is certainly interesting. Well, uh, this one here. I, I did hear or read it that they, on occasion, do make actually shade trees. Uh-huh. And I think the reason this here, the the 
that limb was going parallel was because it got run over by a lawnmower. <laughs> well, now you've just uh, you've just shed a whole new light on it. Yeah, I would compare their their growth habit to uh, something that's a little more upright. Tr- I, upright tree like a cedar elm is compared to a big spreading live oak. But uh, yeah, I think it'll make a very good tree in your yard. But don't expect it to make a a ten foot bush. It's going to get much taller than that with good care. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's it's always uh, this is like always uh, attending a, a class. And I appreciate <laughs> it. You have a enjoy this beautiful day. I will sure do it, Mac. You do the same. And let me get Stephen in here. Good morning, Stephen. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Wishing I was sitting outside broadcasting today, but uh, uh, that's not in the cards. So I'll just look forward to getting back outside in a while. Okay, we'll get your uh, technicians to give you some Bluetooth microphones or something. <laughs> yeah, it works much better on the receiving end than it does on the broadcast end. Okay, I'm in Houston, so um, I don't get to listen to you as much as uh, I'd like to be able to. But um, I've had a wooden arbor uh, off my patio now for several years. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a rough cedar. It looks like it was rough cedar. Notice there was. Um uh, but I can't be sure. Um, it, the supports for it eventually rotted. It fell over because the grapevine pulled it down. Sure. So uh, several days ago, I started uh, dismantling it, and it became much more easy to use a little battery-operated circular saw to try to unscrew everything. Sure. And so the, there, are, there were two horizontal um, support pieces at the top, and they were two of them put in the trash, so I cut them up, cut them in half. And as I was moving one of them, it started to vibrate. And I noticed when I cut it, both sides of it had one of the bars had two uh, almost perfect circular holes uh-huh. that ran horizontally through it. Yeah. Uh, the other one had only one. And as I say, the one that I was dealing with at the time started vibrating. And I looked at it and I saw something crawling out in that one of those holes. So my natural reaction was to throw it down. <laughs> and about uh, five seconds later, I had eight or so what I thought were bumblebees. I guess mm-hmm. they're carpenter bees. I don't know the difference. Right, right. Uh, coming out. And it, so it occurred to me, uh, if I put up another wooden arbor or wooden anything, is there anything that you can brush on, spray on wood that uh, sort of repels or discourages the carpenter bees? Well, and you're you're very observant and very accurate in your observation. Carpenter bees, mason bees, whatever you want to call them. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because uh, I use a lot of six by six rough cedar in construction around the nursery. Our seminar area um, is, you know, you'll see these holes. I have never seen them tunnel what they're doing is just creating a place to lay their eggs inside they're not really right. having a big colony inside but i've never seen them create which i would what i would call a structural weakness um in the woods so i'm not going to be concerned about it if i was concerned i'd simply paint it um and you know that they i've never seen them tunnel into painted wood but mm, you probably like me i love the look of the rough cedar but i gosh yeah. i certainly don't worry about it in fact i would encourage you because mason bees are actually much better pollinators than the european honeybee they just don't have as good a press agent but um mm-hmm. if you would take some of those pieces of your old rough cedar uh put a little ring bolt uh in the top of them and just hang them out in a shady area 
you know, pieces two or three feet long, uh, you will find that that's where they will go to do this nesting. If you want to do like a glue lamb and put, say, three of them together, so you've in effect got a six by six to hang up or, you know, four by four with just two pieces, uh, you're doing a very good thing for the environment by giving your mason bees a place to grow and reproduce because they, uh, you know, they're very, very good things to have around the yard to have in the garden. So uh, I'm, I'm not really concerned about a little bit of tunneling that they do because they're not making a huge network inside. They're simply drilling, and depending on the species, there are 50, 60 different kinds of mason bees in our area. They may drill a hole that's three-eighths of an inch in diameter, might be half an inch in diameter, might be much smaller, but uh, they're just going in a certain distance. They lay their eggs, put sort of a barrier up between little compartments but they they're not like uh wood ants or carpenter ants that create a whole network of tunnels within the board so uh they're they're not any cause of concern to me from a structural integrity standpoint well i wish i had an easy way of sending you an email picture of these things the cross-section of those boards they're about a one by two Uh and in one of the rails these there were two holes and those holes are probably pretty close to five eighths of an inch in diameter Uh uh-huh they they're they're certainly bigger than a half well and they ran a good distance because i could see some of the entry points on the bottom on the one inch side of the board yeah and and they certainly did take out a good bit of the structural wood really that's that's unusual oh yeah yeah and I'm also a little confused because I thought the mason bee was the uh, real little one. And I have hung two mason bee houses that I mm-hmm. bought that have those straw-type stuff in them. Right. Um, I didn't realize the mason bee was also considered the size of uh, – is there a difference between a bumblebee and a carpenter bee? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but well, okay. and again, carpenter bee, mason, mason bee, these are general category names. They really do not refer – to one species of bee. Now, bumblebees are ground-dwelling. They're going to actually, you know, dig a, a burrow in the dirt uh, is their um, mode of uh, creating a reproductive space, so to speak, whereas the carpenter bee, mason bees, choose what you want to call them because, like I say, they're, I think there's 60 different species so far identified in Texas. Oh. <laughs> they are going okay. to, in general... Um, find you know a, a wood that they can that they can create a cavity in. Uh, it naturally speaking, it's going to be some of the old junipers and things like that. But uh, they're opportunists when they find the appropriate board. That's where they're going to go. But I've never seen them in pine. I've never seen them in fir. It always seems to be. Uh, what we call rough cedar, of course, is western red cedar. It's not anywhere even closely kin to the ash juniper, which is what everybody calls cedar up in the hill country. It's not really cedar, yeah, yeah. and neither is it related to the true cedar, Cedrus deodora, and things like that. So a problem with common names, but if I just sit here and spout you know, technical names and things like that, nobody would understand, and it bore me to death and would certainly bore the audience to death as well. So <laughs> I'm, I apologize if it sometimes seems like we're oversimplifying, but that group of, of and, and I guess if we wanted to give an accurate name to them, we would call them solitary bees as opposed to colony bees, which is what the European right. honeybee right. is. But uh, there are just so many different ones out there. And uh, it's not entirely accurate, but we lump them into big groups like carpenter bee and mason bee. 
Okay, so obviously then uh, trying to brush on cedar oil would not. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not going to repel them. Oil. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know if a stain would deter them or not. Uh, a stain uh-huh. of certainly is uh, visually less obtrusive. I suspect that a shellac, which of course is a natural product oh, yeah. made from something they call the lac beetle, I suspect mm-hmm. a shellac would uh, deter them from uh, from nesting in that area. Probably going to have to refresh it about every three years. But um, mm-hmm. uh, that will be something for you to experiment with. I'll give you. I have one real uh, quick personal question for sure. you. Have, have you got plans to donate your brain to science? I don't think science would want my brain. I'm I'm well, blessed I'm... with, you know. <laughs> I hope it's a long time before that question comes up. But people give me a lot more credit than I really do. I remember a heck of a lot about a subject that interests me which is science and plants and man you could you could pick a hundred other subjects out there and i'd be the biggest idiot in the world so uh uh, i have a specialized brain rather than an especially good brain i guess would be the best way to put it i did get a laugh i don't i don't understand how you can have so much knowledge at the tip of your tongue in the size of a head that looks normal. Um, it seems to me that if, if everything you knew was written down on paper, it would it would be volumes. But, Stephen, you would surprise yourself. I don't know what your specialty in life is, but I think if you really, you know, looked at the amount of knowledge that you have uh that you have stored away in your brain i just i guess what i would say is uh at least at this point in life i have pretty good recall but uh why that is i don't know i did get a good laugh somebody told me uh the other day said you know the speed of light is much faster than the speed of sound and that's why some people appear intelligent until you hear them speak and i'm thinking about various things i've various congress people that i've seen recently and i thought maybe that's who they're talking about hey but i do appreciate the compliment and uh it's always a pleasure visiting with you take care thank you sir bye all right back to gardening and back to the phone calls uh it's going to be yvonne and emily and harry and uh got that other line ringing right now good morning yvonne hi yvonne let's see did hit the right one good morning yvonne hi good morning listen bob i live out here on 10 acres right on jones small square Wood. My grandfather occurred to Citizens Ranch originally in 1868. Wow. Why I'm telling you that the our well, we are on a well. Uh-huh. And still, uh, heights that were in the ground are the same ground. Mm-hmm. We have them tested. They're never rusty or anything. But my problem is that the uh, soil here has a lot of lime. Mm-hmm. Why I'm telling you this is I grew up on the big island of Hawaii, and I like acid. Right. This water and the earth here, my plants don't like it. And I have tried everything to grow the camellias, the azaleas, and, and I've tried to learn how to test the soil, but I'm a flop. So my question is here. I want to move all these azaleas and the acid plants to pots. Mm-hmm. But how, when I put my alkaline water on them, I, they don't last long. 
Well, I would like you to tell me how I can grow them. Well, the thing to do, and you can either grow them in pots. Now, growing in pots brings its own challenges because they, you know, dry out more quickly and um, the roots are certainly more confined. But pH, uh, the measure of alkalinity or acidity, is highly overrated as far as, you know, just a, a numbering system. And I don't believe... Uh, that you will ever succeed in saying, okay, I'm going to try to achieve a pH of, you know, 4.5 or 5.5 or whatever, because you are constantly dumping alkaline water on it. But what I can tell you is if you grow in a soil which is very high in decomposing organic material, very high in compost, as it were, the natural humic acids, fulvic acids, things like that that are produced by the compost give these plants all the acidity that they need. They, uh, and as you make soil more acid, you free up a lot of different elements and things that certain plants like azaleas, camellias, uh, magnolias, uh, blueberries, things really like. So whether you grow them in the ground or whether you grow them in pots, you, number one, have to start with a soil that is very high in organic material, and then you make certain that you're fertilizing with organic products because the synthetic products, the miracle grows and things like that, tend to reduce the organic content of the soil. But if you're fertilizing with the spoma or uh, Medina's, uh, you know, has to grow things like that. You're going to maintain the acidity that you need to grow those things well. Now, if you want to leave them in the ground, quite frankly, what you either have to do is create a raised bed and fill it with a much better soil than you're going to naturally find out of Jones Maltzberger, or you have to excavate the old chalky alkaline soil out of that bed and backfill it with a soil that is much, much higher in compost and things. And if you do that, and if you're in the shade, and if you're dumping an enormous amount of water on the soil, you can grow good azaleas in the ground here. You can grow camellias. You can grow dogwood and other things. But uh, um, it's it's not so much just straight the pH of the soil. It's really how much organic material is there in the soil and how much acid is being naturally produced through the decomposition. So, um, of course, the other thing that will really help, and as you well know, the big island of Hawaii is uh, <laughs> is one of the newer islands and has so much, uh, you know, it has the only live, active, uh, visible volcanoes other than that new island that's still a, you know, a few thousand feet below the surface of the ocean. But get some good lava rock, some good lava sand, and work into the potting soil or into the flower beds, and you will grow anything much, much better if you add some of that good old Hawaiian lava to the soil. But the thing that's going to help you grow those azaleas and the plants that you love better, that's just getting lots and lots of compost into the soil mix you use, whether it's in the ground or whether it's in pots. That choice is yours. Well, now, when you say buy compost, where do I buy it and what do I buy it? And how often, if I'm in those pots, do I have to add some extra chemical like to feed them you you never have to add an extra chemical you only have to add a good organic fertilizer if you want to buy your compost at heb look for the brand that is called top shelf 
If you want to buy your uh, compost at a good nursery, look for the brand called Nature's Creation. Uh, Those are currently, in my opinion, the two best bagged compost products on the market. Now, if you happen to find a nursery which still has some of the Ladybug Revitalizer compost, uh, that's some of the best that was ever made, but it is in very limited supply now. But HEB is carrying this uh, this product called Top Shelf Compost. Uh, many of your better nurseries are carrying Nature's Creations uh, compost, and, and both of those are going to be just fine for your purposes. So I put the stuff in these pots. I bought these big pots. Uh-huh. And... I'm filling it full of this stuff you're telling me, and I have to go buy these bags of that. In well, other words, where do I obtain, when I get the pots, I certainly don't want to put my soil in there. Well, what I, what I would what recommend I, what I would recommend doing is make a mixture of like uh, one-third soil and two-thirds compost. And what is a good compost for these pots? Again, if you're going to buy it at the grocery store, look for what is called Top Shelf brand. If you're going to buy it at a good nursery, um, look for products from Nature's Creation. Those are the two best I think you'll find on the market these days. Another one, not on your side of town, but a uh, brand that's carried by Fanix over on the southeast side is uh, called Happy Frog. It's uh, a product from uh, uh, a different company uh, that makes some real top quality products, but in the part of town you're in, uh, I think you, if you look for either Nature's Creation or Top Shelf, you're going to get a good compost. It'll help you grow those plants. Okay, now I, I get this and fill it. Do I have to check every so often to keep that because I'm watering with this water well, acid? You're, That's what I don't know how to do. Well, you don't need to check it all, and you don't need to worry about that. You're, when you have a lot of organic material in the soil, it has what we call a buffering effect. It will make very acidic water out, uh, you know, closer to neutral. It'll make very alkaline water, which is what we have, much closer to neutral. But uh, you judge by the growth of your plants, and you be sure you're adding, you know, a good natural fertilizer as well. But uh, your soil is going to take care of itself uh, in a healthy environment. If you're not screwing up the soil with these synthetic fertilizers, uh, your soil will stay good for the next 50 years without your having to check it or add anything to it other than just good organic fertilizer products. So you mean when I fill these pots now through there, I don't have to check it? No, ma'am. No. No, if you fill it with the right material, uh, it will stay... One of these materials you've talked about. Yeah, just something right. that's high. And I don't ever say three months have to go and take one of the sulfates, whatever, and pour some water on top of No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Thank you. You've helped me, and you have a good day. You do the same. I appreciate the call. All right, back to gardening is Emily, Allen, Cindy, and Joe. Emily is first. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? Doing extremely well. How about you? Well, that's fantastic. Likewise. Good. Um, I have two questions. Uh, one is, uh, I heard you talking about chanterberry tree. Right. Is that the umbrella tree? There are two different closely related trees. If I'm remembering properly, the genus is M-E-L-I-A, Malia. The one that is commonly called an, ele- uh, an umbrella tree 
tends to be a little bit less upright, a little bit more spreading. Whereas if you're, say, driving down 281 and you see that huge bunch of them there in the Almost Basin, those are more the upright form of the chinaberry tree. So, yes, it's it's half true. There, there are two basic forms. The so-called umbrella tree is one of those two. I know it drops a bunch of these berries or whatever they are. <laughs> berries, you know. leaves, limbs. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, right. And it, it was a gift from somebody because uh, we were neighbors, and so I planted it, uh, and it turned. That's what it turned into. <laughs> and my dogs don't even bother with any of that. So no. That, okay, so that's out of the way. Uh, the other is, I did drop off at your place uh, um, midweek. That mushroom. Yeah, I took a look at it. It's a toadstool. I'd have to, you know, get out a Texas fungus book. It's, uh, it is not one of the really toxic ones. Like I say, it'd probably give more an upset tummy, but, uh, you know, the, it's kind of like beetles. There are people who spend their whole lives studying such a narrow range of things. In this case, we would call them mycologists. So uh, mm-hmm. unless or until I have time to pour through some books, I can't tell you the specific scientific name. But it is it is the form that grows. What you're looking at is the fruiting body of a fungus that grows on rotting wood. So somewhere around your yard, you have an old tree root rotting or old stump rotting or something like like that and this got transported to the point you found it could have been by a squirrel could have been by a dog could have been by somebody just kicking it around but it's not anything that i'm going to lose any sleep over and it's not something the the so-called cap which is what we call a mushroom or a toadstool mm-hmm. that's where the little reproductive bodies called spores uh tend to originate and if you were to put one of these things on a piece of uh say white paper in an area with no wind you would see thousands and thousands and thousands of little dust-like spores and if these spores landed close to a piece of rotting wood they would begin to grow they would ultimately make more of these things but they can't live independently it doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to have these things appear all over your yard or that they're going to be any problem this just happened to be one that was growing on a piece of rotten wood somewhere but i'd simply if you see more just pick them up throw them in the trash Uh, A mature dog is not going to eat on these things. A puppy may grab them and play with them and ingest enough of it to get an upset tummy. But unless it has some real sensitivity, these are not the amanitas or some of those deadly poisonous ones that Shakespeare wrote about. They're they're not anything to be concerned about. And just about everybody with a yard is going to see them at one time or another. Well, that's good news. All I uh, we have a, a rather large yard in that we are on a cul-de-sac, so uh-huh. our our uh, house has a pie-shaped, huge backyard that's 100, 160 feet across. Lucky bordering you. on four homes. <laughs> yeah. And back there, are, two of them are rent homes, and one of the trees um, behind us is one of these days. I just know it's going to fall over. And I'm wondering maybe if that's where it came from. Now, I do know we have uh, the squirrels love our tree. Our, we have two live oaks. Mm-hmm. So um, they and they hop from one tree to the other. They kind of uh, meet up from the back over to the side. And then we ended up with a hickory tree that just some bird buried it there. Sure. And it turned into a hickory tree. Anyway, um and that's the only way I can figure this thing out, where it, where it ended up sitting right next to our patio. 
Um, the dogs did not fool with it, didn't touch it at all, um, and it was all intact mm-hmm. uh, before I got it to you. It, it had been manipulated, and the little the little stool thing part sure. fell off. Sure. Um, but um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. We mowed the entire yard. We have zero mushrooms in our yard. So, um, and as far as deadwood's concerned, um, I, would that be like cut wood that you're holding? No. No, this is old okay. dead tree roots. Dead tree and roots. and yeah. just my personal observation, uh-huh. soft wooded trees like hackberries, like uh, I had an old mimosa tree that was in the yard before I moved to the ranch and, and died out because they're not really good things. But soft wooded trees, the roots, it, it takes maybe five to seven years before they get to the point that you're going to see these toadstools form up and down where the roots are. A really hardwooded tree, like a live oak, it may be 30 years before that wood has decayed to the point that these uh, fungi are going to start producing the caps. In the case of a sort of a mid-range tree like a pecan tree, it may be 10 to 12 years. So at some point, your lot was covered with native trees, and they got bulldoze they got cut down whatever and the point is they can lie there buried in the ground and you don't even know those roots are there and decaying for you know 10 15 30 years and then all of a sudden you'll have one or more of these toadstools produced so um it doesn't mean necessarily you're going to have a bunch more it's certainly not anything i would be concerned about it's it's a natural thing that happens in nature if we did not have decomposing fungi and things like that the earth would be covered 30 miles deep in dead wood and things like that so this is probably something that was in the soil on your lot for many 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 years and it just suddenly decayed to the point that this fungus uh, this type of fungus specifically called a basidiomycete said, okay, I'm to the point that I'm going to reproduce, and that's when it shoots up uh, this this thing that we consider a toadstool okay. or a mushroom. So I, yeah, don't worry about very, it. It's very difficult to even think where it was, sure. only that I know that there are hackberries. Have, a big old huge hackberry tree mm-hmm. has grown up on the other side of the fence at one of the rent homes, and, uh, and they're not tended to. Sure. Uh, and I know that in mowing every now and then, I uncover some root mm-hmm. coming from that direction in our yard, and that may be exactly uh, what you're talking about. It's quite possible, but the yeah. bottom line is don't lose any sleep over it and don't move. Well, <laughs> no, we've been here too many years, <laughs> 40-some-odd yeah. years. So, um, yeah, very good. Well, thank you so much for your um, uh, knowledge, and uh, I, uh, and of course I enjoy the show. And I did drop it off uh, again, uh, according to my note that I left there yeah, for you. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. if I if I come across the name, I will give you a call and give it to you. But mm. quite frankly, at this time of year, the chance of my sitting down with a mushroom or toadstool book and being able to tell you exactly which one that is, um, I don't know when I'm going to have time to do that. But it's it like I can say, it's in the general group of fungi we call basidiomycetes. But that's kind of like trying to pick out one of 500,000 specific species of beetles. And uh, um, if I come across a good mycologist, I'll ask him. But in the meantime, just don't lose any sleep over it. And, well, uh, my, my career was uh, uh, quality assurance and quality control sure. uh, microbiologist. 
Um, but that was for a pharmaceutical company on an industrial <laughs> side, right? So I didn't deal much with the plants and things of that sort. Sure. But uh, I dealt with a little invisible bacteria. Okay, well, very good. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I always listen to your show anyway. Uh, I always look forward to hearing Dr. Kirby. You're very Thank kind, you know. Emily, and Dr. Kirby around to be around in about an hour and 11 minutes. So oh, my. Keep That's listening, and you you we'll others. talk again. Thank you. All right, it's Alan, Joe, Cindy, and Bill, and Alan's next. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I'm on the road between, uh, 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 let's see, uh, on the way to Burning. I'm on that road 470. I may lose you. You hear me okay? I hear you just fine right now. Okay, good deal. All right, so if I lose you, I lose you. Anyway, uh, quick question. I've got Cenizo out in my desert garden, uh-huh. and uh this year, I've never seen this happen, and I cannot find the answer on Google, so I figure your magnificent brain is probably <laughs> smarter than Google anyway. The deal is we've had some kind of caterpillar eat the leaves off our Cenizo out in the desert garden, uh-huh. every one of them. Now, there's one one uh, species that seems to be doing okay. What is this thing? There are caterpillars out there. Of course, all caterpillars are the larval state of some sort of moth or butterfly. And different weather conditions will favor one over the other. It's kind of like that little hackberry butterfly that one year will have hundreds of millions of them, and then we won't see them again for another five or six years. But every every caterpillar out there is from a different species of moth or butterfly. This year's weather has favored um, this particular one, and many times it's a one-to-one relationship. That, that little caterpillar can only live on one particular plant. The pipe vine wow. swallowtail, for instance, there's a little plant called Aristolochia. That's the only plant in the world that its uh, larvae can grow and live on, and so I have no idea which which one it is, but it is one that just favors um, the leaves of Leucophyllum, which is a generic name for the one you have. If it is, you know, problem a problem to you, you can get the BT worm killer, any proce- product that contains Bacillus thuringiensis. Uh, you add a little bit of molasses to it, which will increase the uh, efficacy of it about 2,000%. Don't spray anything but your Sinisa because we don't want to kill any caterpillars except the ones that are causing the damage. But uh, while I can't tell you the specific caterpillar, I can sure tell you that uh, a BT product will control it very, very quickly and efficiently. And depending on what the weather does, it may be 10, 20, 50 years before we have exactly the right conditions for this particular caterpillar to show up in great quantity. I see the same things. I had the same thing last year on a plant called prickly ash. I don't think I'd ever seen that caterpillar before, and I haven't seen it this year. But last year, the conditions were just right for that particular little one, and um, it did damage the heck out of them for one year, and this year they're absolutely gorgeous again. That's amazing because they're normally such a hardy plant, those mm-hmm. Sinisa, and uh, it's just, it blew us away. They're already pretty damaged. We tried water, tried spray them off, tried uh, some insecticidal soap. And no, that's not going to get it. BT yeah, will stop them, and, but it's visual damage. I doubt that there's, unless, 
you know, if we have an extreme amount of moisture, that can cause some damage to Sinisa. But um, they're going to come right back out from it. But if you want to control those caterpillars, go to any good okay. nursery, uh, get a BT product, add about a teaspoon of molasses per gallon of spray, and uh, that'll okay. totally control them. But just don't spray anything but your Sinisa. Sounds good. Should I just go ahead and cut dead stuff off to the, the main branches and let it regrow? Or? I think it's probably not even dead. I think it's just defoliated. Uh, you can yeah. trim a bit if you like just for cosmetic purposes, but uh, chances okay. are these caterpillars will turn into whatever moth or butterfly. They'll go away and you'll never see them again, and your Sinisa will come right back out. Very good. Just, I appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of the day. You do the same. Just don't add any extra water. Your soil is plenty soaked up there, and excessive yeah. moisture would be the bigger danger to your sinesis, not these little caterpillars. So, uh, you be more rain this week too. Looks like <laughs> that's what it looks like. You know, that's what I described Texas: one long drought interrupted by occasional floods. So, <laughs> be safe out there on the road, Alan. We will talk again.